family member or friend of Kenzie's, if you would please stand in her honor as she follows the Lord in believer's baptism. Kenzie is eight years old, and I'll have to say she's about the most excited girl I've seen to get baptized in a long time. She has almost baptized herself twice up here this morning, <laughs> waiting for these doors to open. But on Christmas Day, if you remember, Christmas was on a Sunday in 2022, and we had a great service here that morning. And at the end of the service, there were quite a few who received Jesus and were saved that day, and one of those was Kenzie. And so, Kenzie, your spiritual birthday is the same day that Jesus was born, and so that's something that's very, very special. And I had the privilege last week of meeting with her and with her family, and Kenzie, we know that Jesus is living in your heart, right? And he has forgiven your sins and made you a Christian. He has tremendous plans for your life. And so, Kenzie, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because you've asked him to save you, it is an honor for me today to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
And all the people said, Father, I thank you for Kenzie, and I pray a blessing on her life. I pray for others here today, God, who need to do the same thing. Give them the wisdom to know it and the courage to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And all the people said, amen again. What a way to begin. Listen, what a weekend we've had. I'll say more about that in a moment. But if you're one of our guests in the room or watching, either way, thank you for worshiping with us today. And we want you to let us know that you are our guest today. You can do it by taking your phone, tapping in the little number that'll be on the screen. I hope it's coming up. And then there it is. And then in the bulletin, you can tear that out and drop it in the giving center box if you'd like to do that. But we want you to know you're letting us know is such an encouragement. If you have a need or a prayer need, uh, write that, tell us that, and we'll certainly respond. But members, let's give our guest a hand. Can we do that? Now, let me say to you, I wish every member of this church could have been over in Grace Center uh, this weekend. We've had an absolutely unbelievable breaking free. I think they have a picture. Don't we have a picture? Picture, picture. There it is. I'm telling you what, I, it has just been tremendous weekend of breaking free. I'm going to slip out in just a moment and go over and have a prayer over that group. Then I'm coming back and be back to worship here. But uh, I want you to pray that they'll all be in the second service, but pray that many of these decisions that have been made this weekend by students, that we as a church will do everything we can to encourage them to keep moving forward with the Lord. We bless the Lord for that. I was watching on the screen right before the service, Chris Squires leading a new member class. For If you are a new member of our church or you're thinking about joining our church, either way, this afternoon from 5 to 6.30 uh, in the Fellowship Center, Chris is going to be leading some ways to help us grow in our Christian life. Now, I'm very excited about our ladies' prayer retreat coming up in the latter part of March. We have some additional rooms. Ladies, we need now, had good sign-up last week. We need to get you to sign up this week. It's right there, fbp.org slash women. And uh, our, some people say, I, I'm having a hard time signing up. Listen, folks, every time I turn on my computer, if there's anything I'm trying to do new, I have a hard time, so don't feel badly. Suzanne, I'm saying if they need help, call the church office. All you need to do is call the church office. We have ministry assistants. They don't really have anything to do. They're just sitting there waiting for you to call. <laughs> Tell them the pastor said, help you get signed up. And I'm going to be doing a video in the morning with Dottie and Lynn, and they're going to tell the ladies why you need to try to do your best to be at this retreat. It's just going to be a great, great time. Thank you for your faithfulness in giving. You know, God blesses when we obey. And I would be the first to say I'm a testimony of that. And many of you would say the same thing. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father, I bless you and thank you this morning. God, I've, I've been in all these worship services this weekend, and I, it's just been like heaven come down. God, I've been part of breaking free for all these years, but this year's breaking free has been different. And I thank you for that. And I pray every decision that's been made, God, help us, help them to keep moving forward with Jesus. Now, God, bless this service in every way is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Our God is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is worthy of our praise this morning. Till heaven came to 
God, we praise you and thank you this morning. You are worthy. You are our God. You are our Savior. We worship you. We proclaim your greatness this morning. And we can't wait to see, as the Holy Spirit moves in this room, what you're going to do in this place today. Anoint and bless our preacher in Jesus' name. Amen. Purity. 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 It's a direction. A persistent and determined pursuit. It is freedom from all that contaminates. It is without anything foreign or inappropriate. It is not just the appearance of good in our actions. But the truth of good in our hearts and minds. It just doesn't happen by accident. It is a decision and constant discipline of the mind to meditate on truth. That is? Whatever is noble. Whatever is pure. Whatever is right. Whatever is lovely. And whatever is admirable. Excellent or praiseworthy. It is choosing to meditate on these things. It is counter-opposite to humanity's natural condition, yet needed so desperately within the world stage of media, politics, and church pulpits. It's a virtue hard-pressed to find. And often ridiculed by those who live it out. Purity. 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 Why have we forgotten you? Well, I would think that by now, most everyone here has seen uh, on television or on, on the news about the revival that is taking place at Asbury University in Kentucky. If you haven't, about a week and a half ago, they had a chapel service there, which is a very normal thing to do at a Christian university. And when the service ended, the students didn't leave. They just stayed and continued to sing and worship the Lord and pray and read scripture. And it's been about 10 days now, and that's still going on. In fact, people are coming from all over the world to Asbury to try to get a feel and to experience what God is doing there. And as I've just been watching that on television and really more on my phone than on television, the question that has come to my mind is simply this. Is there a connection between purity and a revival. Now, we've been talking about purity on Sunday, and we're going to again uh, today and next week. But the question is, is there a connection between purity and a revival? It's interesting. Asbury University is a non-denominational school, but it is aligned with the Wesleyan Holiness Movement. You know that name, Wesleyan, from John and Charles Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church. And the entire idea of the Methodist Church when it was founded was that if you follow certain methods, that's why it's called Methodist from the word method. If you follow certain methods, you can expect God to do certain things in your life. Those methods would be prayer, Bible reading, worship privately and corporate, and personal holiness. And so the Wesley brothers, although they would be the first to say that they were not perfectly holy either, any more than any of us are, they had a strong emphasis on holiness. And so Asbury University Although it's not a Methodist school, it is aligned with that holiness movement. And it has made me ask the question, is there a connection between purity, holiness, and a revival? We know that there's a connection between prayer and revival, right? Maybe, maybe the question first we should ask is, what is a revival? Well, there are a lot of ways you could define a revival. Maybe the simplest way to say it would be this. A revival is a fresh moving of the Holy Spirit that ignites and reignites spiritual lives, spiritual life in the people of God. If you would agree with me that we need a revival today, say amen. amen. We need a revival and we're praying for revival. And we know that there is a connection between prayer and revival because the Bible tells us there is. The scripture says, God said in the Old Testament, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and so on. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. So we know that there's a connection between prayer and revival. And we also know that there is a connection between praise and revival. When we praise God, when we offer our praises to God, whether it's privately or corporately, there's something that happens there. In Psalm 22 and verse 3, the scripture tells us that God, listen to this, God inhabits the praise of his people. And so when we offer our praise up to God, 
there is a sense, a very real sense, in which God's Spirit comes down in a special way. So there's obviously a connection between prayer and revival, between praise and revival. But how about this whole idea of purity, holiness? Is there a connection between purity and revival? Is it a coincidence that what is happening in Kentucky is happening at a school, a university, that has a strong emphasis on holiness. Well, I believe certainly there is a connection between purity and revival. As R.T. Kendall, longtime pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, has spoken here seven consecutive years, and we look forward to having him back at the right time. But as he has said to us in several of his sermons that he has preached here, when we sin, there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit, like a dove, flutters away. Now, the reason I say there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit flutters away because, is because literally the Holy Spirit doesn't flutter away. The Holy Spirit never leaves us. When you sin, God doesn't leave you. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. But there is a sense in which, like a dove, the Holy Spirit flutters away. You say, well, how could that be? If he doesn't leave, what is it that leaves? I'll tell you what leaves. The intimacy, the closeness, the power, the anointing, the special blessing and favor of God on your life. When we sin, there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit leaves. I, I, I read years ago about a missionary couple who had moved to Israel to begin their missionary work, a husband and wife. And they were renting a house there near Jerusalem. And they were so excited to be in Israel and so excited to tell the people there about Jesus. And, and to make it even better, they came home one evening and they noticed on the roof of their house, a dove had just settled in on the roof of their house. And they were so excited. They went in the house. They had some groceries. They were in and out of the garage. And when they got everything unloaded, they went back to the front yard to look up and to see that dove, but the dove had gone. And they thought, man, we wanted to get a picture of the dove. Here we are in Israel and a dove is on our house. And so they didn't think much more about it. Well, the, two or three days later, they came home. The dove was up there again. They went in and put their stuff up. They came out to get a picture of the dove. The dove was gone. And this happened multiple times. And they were trying to figure out why is it that after we've been home for a few minutes and we come back out, that the dove just kind of flutters away. And one of them figured it out and said to the other, I think what's happening here is when we go in the house and close the door, slam the door loudly, it rattles the dove. You know, a dove is a very sensitive bird and it makes the dove nervous. And so the dove flutters away. And they said to each other, well, in order for the dove not to fly away, we're going to have to stop slamming the door. We're going to have to close the door more, you know, gently and more quietly. And so they started doing that. And one of them said this, and I thought it was one of the greatest quotes in the book that I read. The dove is not going to adjust to us. We're going to have to adjust to the dove. And that's how it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not going to adjust to sin in our lives. When we sin in thought, in word, in deed, there is a sense in which the intimacy, the anointing, the special blessing, the power of the Holy Spirit just flutters away. He's not going to adjust to our sin. What do we have to do? We have to adjust to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, I wrote this down as I was preparing this sermon, and, and I, think this is one of, I think this is maybe the, the sermon in a sentence today. The purer we are, the more powerfully present the Holy Spirit will be in our lives. Now, again, the Holy Spirit is never going to leave us, but if we sin, for all practical purposes, he flutters away, even though he's still there. But the purer we are, the more powerfully present the Holy Spirit will be in our lives. That's why we have a booklet out on purity, pursuing purity. And I encourage you to get several of these today on your way out and give them to people in your neighborhood that you work with, friends, and hopefully it'll be an encouragement and blessing to them. This is where we're in a sermon series on purity because the purer we are, the holier we are, none of us are gonna be perfect until we get to heaven, but the purer we are, the more powerfully present the Holy Spirit will be in our lives. Now, in the last two weeks, we've thought about purity from several different angles. If you remember the sermon two weeks ago, I did a whole sermon, see if you can fill in the blank, on the importance of having a blank for purity. You remember what that was? Well, I, I can tell this series is really taking hold. <laughs> Changing lives. 
we talked about the importance of having a desire for purity. You remember that one? Play like you remember that. Oh, yes, that's coming back to me now. Last week, I'll try to set you up better on this one. We talked about not only having a desire, but making a blank to live a pure life, making a commitment. Because we said last week, a desire without a commitment is not going to amount to much of anything. A desire, have to have that. That's proof of salvation. A commitment, we have to make a commitment with God's help to live a pure life. But today we're going to the next step, and that is trying to learn what to do in the moment of temptation. You know, I've always heard, and I know it's true, that it is better and easier to avoid temptation than it is to overcome it. And all of us in our lives, if we know something is going to tempt us, instead of seeing how close we can get to it uh, without sinning, we should just stay away from it and not put ourselves in that particular situation. It's easier to avoid temptation than it is to overcome it. And yet, sometimes we can't avoid temptation altogether. It's just out there. And we have to know what to do in the moment of temptation. So if you'll open your Bibles, all that said, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I want to read you a passage for us to read a passage out of the New Testament. And then I want us to go back into the Old Testament and see this passage lived out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse number 12, Paul is talking about temptation. He's talking about the importance of, of resisting temptation and not giving into it. And 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, he says this, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, sometimes in life we think about temptation and, and we think about sin and we say to ourselves, I would never do that. There is no way in the world that I would ever commit that sin. Well, the Bible says you better be extra careful. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Do you remember the night before Jesus was crucified on that Thursday? He said to his disciples, he said, tonight, every one of you is going to run away from me. You're all going to leave me. And Simon Peter spoke up and he said, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will not leave you. And Jesus said back to Peter, he said, Peter, tonight, before this night gets over and before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, Lord, I will never deny you. There's no way in the world I would do that. And of course, we know that just a few hours later, he did. And it says to me that this verse is really, really applicable. Let him who thinks he stands Take heed lest he fall. But now in verse 13, we get to the heart of the passage. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear. One of the greatest verses in the New Testament about temptation. Let me make a couple of observations about that. Then we'll get to the Old Testament. First, Everyone faces temptation. Notice how the verse begins. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Today, you may be facing a temptation. You say, man, nobody knows what this feels like. Yes, they do. People all over the world are facing something very similar to what you're facing right now. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. The New Living Translation says it this way. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Sometimes the devil would have us to think, well, this, this temptation I'm feeling, nobody's ever had anything quite like this. Yes, they have, and yes, they do. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. It's a common temptation that people all over the world are experiencing. So everyone faces temptation, but think of, it this, think of this as well. God helps us when we're tempted. He helps us. He doesn't just leave us down here alone. Notice what it says. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. What does that mean? It means that God limits the intensity of the temptation. Now, we think of temptation. We always think about the sexual area, sexual temptation. That's certainly a big part of it. You can't be pure in your life if you're not pure in that area. None of us can. We have to seek to be pure there. But just because you're pure in that area, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're pure in every other area. You could be morally and sexually pure, 
and not be pure in some other area of your life. Maybe you're not pure in your finances. Maybe you're not pure. Maybe you're not an honest. Maybe you lie. You're not sexually immoral, but you don't tell the truth. You're not sexually immoral, but you don't pay your taxes. I told a story at the 11 o'clock service last week. I just didn't think to tell it in this service, but I think it proves the point. There was a man who had not been honest on his income taxes. He had not reported all of his income. And a few weeks after that all happened, he was feeling very guilty about that. And so he couldn't sleep at night. He really felt bad. And so he wrote a letter to the IRS and he said, dear IRS, I was not honest on my recent tax return. I did not disclose all the income that I had made and I feel terribly guilty about it. Enclosed is a check for $500. P.S. If I continue to feel guilty, I'll send the rest later on. (laughs) Now that man may have been sexually pure, but he wasn't financially pure. He wasn't honest with his business dealings. And so when we think about temptation, we have to remember this. God will help us by limiting the intensity of the temptation. In other words, today, whatever temptation you may be feeling, you need to know this. From heaven, God looks down and God says, you can handle that. You can overcome that temptation. That temptation is not too much for you. If it were too much for you, I never would have allowed you to face that temptation. I'm going to help you, and I'm limiting the intensity of that temptation. So the fact that you're being tempted, if you look at it this way, it's really encouraging, is God's way of saying to you, I believe you can handle it. I know that you can overcome this temptation. Now, that doesn't mean if we've just let all the boundaries down and we're out flirting with sin and playing, seeing how close we can get the line without falling over. That's not what it's talking about. But it's just saying as you're living your life, trying to pursue purity and a temptation comes along in whatever area, God says, you can handle that. It's not too much. I'm not going to let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation, now notice this, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it or to endure it. That phrase, the way of escape, that's what we have to look for when we're tempted. The way of escape, the way out, so that we won't give in to the temptation and we won't mess up. I can remember back in 1995, I had just come on staff here at the church. I was a student minister. And we had students from Deer Park, just like it is now, different schools. And I noticed that the students didn't know each other super well. So I was doing everything I could to get those kids together and so they would develop relationships with one another because they didn't all go to school together. We played putt-putt. We rode go-karts. We went, we did everything. We went to the LaPorte Wave Pool. We did everything you can imagine to Astroworld, everything we could to create chemistry within that group. Well, one summer day or one week, I thought it might be a good idea to take the kids to a movie. And so I found a movie. I had not seen it. It was either PG or PG-13. And I thought, well, that'd be a fine movie for the kids. We got in the movie theater and 10 minutes into it, there started being terrible language. And I was so embarrassed. I thought, what in the world have I done? Church is going to fire me right here on my first what have I brought these kids to? And they just, the more it went, the worse it got. And I said to myself, well, we can't stay and watch this. So I kind of whistled to the kids and said, hey, we're out of here. We're leaving. And so we went out the back door and went and did something else that day. And, and I, learned two le- I learned a lesson that day. First of all, don't ever take a group of teenagers to watch a movie you haven't seen. That was the first thing I learned. And the kids learned a lesson that day. And the lesson they learned was, If you're in a movie that you ought not to be watching, you can always head for the exits and get out of the theater. And when the Bible says that God will provide a way of escape, this is very literal in what it's saying. There will always be an exit. There will always be a way out. There will always be a way for you and for me not to sin. Because it says here, with the temptation... God will also make the way of escape. And so when we're tempted in whatever the area is, we have to look for a way out. You know, sometimes we're tempted. We don't even think of this as temptation. Sometimes we get in a conversation with somebody and the conversation gets very opinionated and it may get very political in nature or some other subject. And the other person says something that we, li- we hear it and we say, well, that's not true. That's not right. And we want to tell our side. And sometimes you can do that. You know, if you're soft and tender and 
and, and Christ-like, you, you know, you can tell them, you, you can always say what you think, but sometimes it's just best to diffuse that conversation. Sometimes it, that, that's the way of escape. In other words, instead of engaging in that conversation, in other words, somebody may say, well, I think so-and-so political person is the greatest thing that ever happened to our country. And you're thinking the greatest thing that ever happened. I think that's the worst thing that ever happened to our country. Well, if you answer back harshly, you're in an argument. So that's a temptation. We don't think of that as temptation, but it is. So what do we do? We either diffuse that and say, man, I'll tell you what, I, that's all above my pay grade and don't even engage. Or you can engage in that conversation if you do it softly. If you say, well, you know, I guess I kind of look at it slightly differently. And then you can tell how you feel. But that's the way of escape. That's how you get out. You don't see an exit sign in that case, but that's a way out. That's a way to avoid conflict and a way to avoid an argument. And so God will always provide the way of escape. Now, that said, let's go back to the Old Testament, the book of Genesis in chapter number 39. And we're thinking this morning about the life of Joseph and how Joseph, who was certainly a godly young man, how he faced a temptation and how he dealt with that temptation in his life. So in Genesis chapter 39, many of us are very familiar with the story of Joseph. He was one of 12 sons, the son of Jacob. His brothers had become jealous of him because his father had given him a beautiful coat of many colors. Joseph was the favorite child and the other brothers resented that. And so they threw him in a pit thinking he'll just die down there. And then one of them spoke up and said, hey, let's get him out of the pit. We don't want him to die down there. And let's sell him to some Ishmaelites who are traveling down to Egypt. And that way we won't be guilty of killing him. We won't have his blood on our hands. And not only that, we can make some money off of our brother. And that's exactly what they did. Pulled him out of the pit, sold him. Joseph is taken to Egypt, 17 years old, no family there, no connections there not known there, a foreigner in Egypt. And yet as we read about Joseph's story, we read over and over again, God was with him, God was with him, God was with him. And God got Joseph a good job in Egypt in a governmental position. He was working for one of Pharaoh's main assistants. And the, the assistant loved Joseph and trusted Joseph completely. And yet this man that Joseph worked for, his wife began to desire to be with Joseph in an immoral way. And so she began to seduce him. She began to tempt him. She began to lure him in. And so here's Joseph facing temptations. Now, what did we say a moment ago? We said everybody faces temptation. And here's Joseph. He came from a great family. Jacob was his father. Isaac was his grandfather. Abraham was his great-grandfather. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they came from a great family, yet he was not immune from temptation. He, he himself had a personal relationship with God. Genesis 39, look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Look at verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him. And so Joseph didn't just come from a great family. Joseph had a relationship with God himself. Not only that, he was a successful man. Look at the end of verse two. And he was, a, it says it, he was a successful man. And he was in the house of the, his master, the Egyptian. Look at the second part of verse three. And that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Verse four. So Joseph found favor in his sight. That is in Potiphar's sight, his boss's sight, and served him. Then he made him overseer of all his house. And all that he had, he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread, which he trusted Joseph completely. So Joseph was very successful. Not only that, he was young, he was strong, and he was attractive. Look at the end of verse six. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He had a good physique. He was a good looking guy. And so he had all these things going for him. And yet everybody faces temptation. And beginning in verse seven, we read about his temptation. Let's look at it. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph 
And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day. She's just wearing him down. Day by day, she's enticing him. She is seducing him that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. So he just continues to resist uh, her overtures in verse 11. But it came about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. She's almost demanding him now to do this. But notice what it says. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. What did he do? He took a way of escape. He saw the sign, the exit sign, and he ran out the door. Now, we're not going to read the rest of the chapter, but if we did, we would find an interesting thing. You would expect after Joseph has resisted this lady's seduction and done the right thing and taken his stand for purity and headed for the exits, you would have expected that maybe God would have sent a few angels down there to Egypt and those angels would have applauded for Joseph. That Joseph, we were watching, man, we know that wasn't easy, but you resisted and you took the way of escape and we're so proud of you. You would think maybe that's what would have happened. You would think maybe Jesus one of the Old Testament pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Maybe Jesus himself would have come and he would have said, Joseph, I'm so proud of you. I know that wasn't easy, but I allowed you to be tempted. You resisted. You headed for the exit. You took the way of escape. I'm so proud of you. And I want you to know, but that's not what happened. In the rest of this chapter, we read that as a direct result of Joseph doing the right thing, this lady who had seduced him got very angry and she accused him of raping her. Totally untrue. And yet, think about it. They're in Egypt. She's married to a high-ranking government official. Joseph is a foreigner. Who are the Egyptians going to listen to her? To Potiphar's wife or Joseph? Well, they listen to Potiphar's wife. And so Joseph is thrown in prison maybe for as long as 13 years. We're not sure how old Joseph was or how long he had been in Egypt when this happened, but maybe as long as 13 years. Maybe it was eight, nine, or 10 years. But for a long time, Joseph is in prison and he has the stigma of having sexually assaulted this lady because everybody in Egypt is gonna believe her and not him. And so it says to me, and, and I think this is such an important thing for us to remember. While it is true that God rewards obedience. It is also true that God doesn't always reward obedience immediately. You can do the right thing, and sometimes things will get worse before they get better. And it tells us this, the motive, the incentive to do the right thing is not just so things will be easier for us. The incentive to do the right thing is so that God will be pleased with us. And when Joseph did the right thing, even though his circumstances got worse, what happened? Well, God was with him. And even though he did have to go to that prison and be there for many years, eventually he did get out. And eventually God did reward that obedience. And he did become the prime minister. And God did use him to save ultimately his family the Israelites, and even the Egyptians' lives by how he had stored up food for the famine that was to come on the land. But the point I'm making is, in that moment of temptation, when it would have been easier, Joseph could have said to himself, well, I, nobody knows me here. My father's not here. My brothers aren't here. My friends aren't here. My community's not here. Nobody will know. What difference will it make? And he could have gone in and had relations with that lady. But Joseph said to her, I can't commit this sin. I, I can't do this thing and sin against God because if I do that, what was Joseph saying? Well, he wasn't using these words, but in his mind, in an Old Testament sense, he was thinking, if I do this, this intimacy, this closeness that I have with God is gonna flutter away. 
And, and it's not going to be the same as it is right now. So he took his stand and he let the consequences be what the consequences were. And he didn't try to control that. So what do we do in the moment of temptation? Well, I want to mention three words or three phrases today. Two of them are just words. And the other one is a short phrase. But I want you to write these down. And hopefully we can memorize this. And more importantly, when we get out there later today or tonight or this week and some temptation, whether it's sexual, whether it's a heated conversation, whether it has to do with finances and maybe not being as forthcoming as we should be, three things that we should do in the moment of temptation. Number one, pause. Pause. Just buy yourself some time. Now, you can't pause for 30 minutes. You can't pause for a day and a half. It may just be a few seconds, depending on what the temptation is. But before you say something that you're going to regret, or before you do something that deep down you know is wrong, just pause and buy yourself a little bit of time. Pausing is is a great preventative to sin. Impulse leads us into sin. So what we're trying to do is to take the impulse out to take the flesh out and to give the spirit who's living in us just a moment to show us what to do. So pause. Step number two, think. You've paused. You're trying to buy yourself some time. You're not giving a, you're you're at work tomorrow and here goes the conversation and it's political and somebody says something and you're thinking, you've lost your mind. If you say to them, you've lost your mind. Now you've got an argument on your hands, right? Or if it's like Joseph, here you are in the moment and the temptation is right there and you're feeling that pull, you've got to pause and you've got to think. What are we thinking, John? Here's what we're thinking. If I say this or if I do this, how am I going to feel three hours from now? How am I going to feel three hours from now? Well, just to think like that uh, will help you. If I say this or if I do this, what will be the consequences of this? If I say this or if I do this, how, do, how is this going to affect my witness for Christ? I mean, not going to help it if I'm rude to somebody. And certainly if we give in to a, to, a, to a temptation like Joseph was faced with, certainly that's not going to help our witness for Christ. So just think, pause, think, take the impulse out. And it's not so much what do I want to do or say in this moment. It's what do I want to do or, or say or not do or not say in this moment that three or four hours from now or three or four days from now or three or four weeks from now, I'll be glad that I didn't do that. I didn't say that. I did do this. I did say that. I'm pausing. I'm thinking. I'm getting the impulse out so that I can make the right decision. And then the third thing is, do the right thing. You see, in the moment of temptation, yes, we pause, buy ourselves a little time, we think, but eventually we have to do the right thing. We have to walk away from the conversation, from the temptation. We have to head for the exits and we have to do the right thing. You know, temptation, if you think about it, is a fork in the road. And when you come to a temptation, that road is forking off and you have to decide which way am I going to go. And what we want to do is to do the best we can to do the right thing and to go God's way. Now, next week, I'm going to do a sermon from Genesis chapter 37 about Joseph's brother, Judah, and a sin, or chapter 38, rather, and a sin he committed And we're going to think next week about God's forgiveness and God's grace because that's always there. But I I think sometimes when we're thinking about purity and temptation and sin, we always just jump, well, God will forgive me. Well, he will forgive us. And I'm certainly thankful for that. We've We've all been forgiven by God. I mean, we're so grateful for God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we're going to focus on that next week. But today, we're thinking about making the right decision in the moment of temptation so we won't have to be forgiven. I I heard a pastor say one time, it's one of the best things I've ever heard. He said, it's better not to sin than it is to sin and be forgiven. Now you think about that. It's better not to sin 
than to sin and be forgiven. Now, we all do sin. We have sin. We thank God for his grace and forgiveness. So today, as we think about temptation and, and, and what to do in that moment, don't think so much about things you've done in the past because anything that's in the past can't be undone. It has to be forgiven by God, and we thank God for his gift. But today, we're thinking not about the past, about the present and about the future and about the moment of temptation. And we're thinking in that moment, when I want to do this, when I want to say this, how can I do the right thing? We pause, we think, we do the right thing, we put boundaries and guardrails around our lives so, so that we won't stay in a temptable situation long. I think many people just see how close to the cliff we can get, you know, to the edge of the cliff without falling over. I read last night about a man. This was funny to me. It, he was on a diet, trying to lose weight. So he made some major changes. One of the things he stopped doing, he stopped eating donuts on the way to work every morning. He had a donut shop he would stop at. He said, I can't do that anymore. Well, after about three months on that diet, he was craving a donut. He drove to work one day, looked over to the right. There's a donut shop, cars all over it, not, a, not an available parking spot. And he started praying. He said, now, God, I believe that I'm doing the right thing not to eat those donuts. But Lord, I need a confirmation from you. I need a sign from you that I'm doing the right thing. And so Lord, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna drive around the block and when I come back, if there's an open parking spot in front of that donut shop, I'm gonna take that as a sign from you that it's okay for me to eat the donut. And sure enough, after eight times around the block, he found an open spot. And I read that last night and I thought, you know, isn't that like us? Isn't that what we do? We just drive around the block and drive around the block and drive around the block and drive around the block. You know what God would say to us today? God would say, if you're tempted by the donuts, don't drive around the block. Keep going and drive down the street as far as you can get from that donut shop. That's what God would say to us. Now, next week, we're going to be thanking God for his grace and mercy because it's absolutely amazing. But today, we're saying, God... I do thank you for your grace and mercy and your forgiveness. I do thank you, God, that when I fall over the cliff like an ambulance, you're there to, to fix me up again. But God, today what I'm doing, I'm putting some guardrails on both sides of the road so that in the moment of temptation, I can do the right thing that you would be honored and that you would be pleased. Amen? Amen. And so, Father, today we're asking you to help us to live holy lives. God, we do believe that there's a connection between purity and revival, between holiness and revival. It's not just prayer. It's not just praise. It's a desire to pursue purity in our lives. And so, God, I pray for that person today. And this may not even apply to every, I mean, we're all tempted. But, God, there may be one or two or three people here today who are at the precipice of a cliff. And they're about to fall over. And, God, I pray today that you would take this message and let it be for them a warning and a wake-up call to pause buy themselves a little time to think, is this really what I want to do? Is this really how I want to act in this? Is this really what I want to say? And then God give them and me and all of us in the moment of temptation, when like Joseph, we feel like, well, nobody will know. Nobody's looking. Help us to remember, God, you're looking. You're there. And help us to have the attitude of Joseph that says, how can I sin? and commit this wickedness against God. God, help us to live holy and pure lives. Would you pray that to God today? Your own words, just pray that to God. Now, as I said two weeks ago when we began this series, I quoted one of my mentors who said that holiness is not the way to Jesus. Jesus is the way to holiness. We don't clean our lives up and say, okay, Lord, now I've, I've cleaned things up and I present myself to you. Because listen, after we clean ourselves up in the eyes of God, we're still like filthy, dirty rags. We're still unrighteous. We're still sinners. 
So holiness is not the way to Jesus. Jesus is the way to holiness. We go to Jesus with all of our sins. He cleans us up and forgives us. And then he helps us to live a more holy life. But today, if you've never received Jesus, you don't stand a chance. You don't stand a chance. You don't have the Holy Spirit living in you. You can't live a holy life without the Holy Spirit. Neither can I. And so today, if you say, John, I'm not 100% sure that I have the Holy Spirit living in me, would you pray this prayer right now? Say, Lord Jesus, I need you to clean me up and forgive me of my sins. I ask you to come into my heart right now and make me a Christian. Lord, I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. I trust you, Jesus, right now with all my heart, with all my soul. And Lord, I'm asking you to help me to live a holy life before you. Now today, I believe there have been people in this service who've prayed that prayer, and I I base that on what we're seeing happen almost every Sunday in every service. I think last week there were three in this service who were saved. But today, if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you in just a moment to stand up and to remain standing. I want to have a prayer over you. And by standing, that's your way of saying, I have given my life to Jesus. Others here today, you prayed that prayer before today. You didn't just get saved right now, but you've never stood. You've never taken any kind of stand in a setting like this. And today, we want to give you a chance to do that. Now, today, when you stand, my dad and I will mainly be the only ones looking around. So you'll be making your first confession to us. But that's okay. It has to, your confession has to begin somewhere, and it will grow in time. But there's something about standing that seals that decision in your heart. It makes it real in your own soul. And God sees that, and God is touched by that. We're not saved by standing. We're saved by trusting. But if our faith is real, we will take our stand. So all over this room this morning, if you have prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand and remain standing, and I want to have a prayer over you. Who will stand first today? Who will stand first today? Okay, good. Thank you. Two have stood right there. Thank you so much. Three, a third has stood. Thank you. God bless you. What courage that takes today. Doing the right thing. Who else would stand and say, John, I I, I prayed that prayer and I haven't stood. And I need to confess Christ today. Who else would stand? Anybody in the upper level today? Anybody in the upper level? How about the side sections? Just stand right now. I want to pray over you in just a moment. Three so far have stood. Anybody on my right over here? How about on the lower level? Anybody else? All three stood today on the lower level. Five more seconds. If nobody stands, we'll stop. If you stand, we'll extend it. Anybody else? Last chance for today. Okay. Well, Father, I thank you for these three who have stood today and by standing have let it be known here that they have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, it looks like that three new people have been brought into our family today, the family of God. Fill their hearts with peace and help them to know that today is their spiritual birthday, that they're born again, they're a brand new person in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. And all the people said... Amen, amen. Let's thank the Lord. That is an awesome sight. Awesome sight. Now, for the three of you who stood today, first of all, congratulations. Today, as I said, February the 19th is your spiritual birthday. And so congratulations. Jesus will never leave you for the rest of your life. He'll be with you through all eternity now. But I want to ask you if you could give us about 10 minutes of your time after the service to go to our family room. There are ministers there. We want to give you a brand new beautiful Bible today, some other literature that will help you take your next steps with God. And there will just be ministers there who want to meet you. Others here today, you're already saved, but you feel God leading you to become part of our church family. And we would be thrilled. I met a man going up to the baptistry this morning and I hadn't met. Uh, he and his wife joined our church sometime back, and I'm just getting to meet him. And already get, he's already very, they're very involved in the church. But others today who you coming here every week, but you haven't joined yet, go to the family room today, and uh, there'll be those there to receive you. So we're going to stand up. Thank you guys for being in church. Let's see, can you remember those three things? Start first one is pause. So I'll give you the first one. Number one, pause.
Okay, you were better at pausing and thinking than you were doing the right thing. Now, I don't know what to read into that. But let's do that this week. Let's try with God's help to do the right thing. Jimmy, get us out of here in good shape today. What are we going to do this week, church, as we leave this place? We're going to help all people experience new life in Jesus Christ. As we go this morning, let's sing, Is He Worthy?